Hey everybody, welcome to Input Output, a brand new music podcast from the Multiversity Podcast Network. My name is Brian Salvatore, and my co-host will be... Vince Ostrowski. And we are going to talk about two records every episode. The first one, uh, Vince picks out, and that is a brand new album. Uh, what's our criteria here? Less than a month old? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm going to try to have it be as uh, contemporary as possible. So, you know, within a couple weeks to to a month, probably. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to listen to it for about a week, talk about it. And then I am going to pick an older album that we're going to pair with this, like musical sommeliers. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take another week to listen to it and then talk about it some more. So uh, for you guys, though, uh, one episode will come out every two weeks and it will include both conversations. So at the end of this episode, you will hear Vince's pick for next episode. So listen up and uh, you can kind of play along with the show. So before we get started, though, um, this is our debut episode. And in a little bit of uh, rock history, Vince, yesterday, January 12th, was the anniversary of the release of Led Zeppelin 1. our debut episode and because we just uh celebrated the led zeppelin one anniversary even though i'm not particularly a led zeppelin fan um are you yeah i am okay um, yeah okay um so we're gonna talk about real quickly our favorite debut albums of all time so vince why don't you give us kind of your two runners up before we get to our number one sure so well before i give you my two runners up i was gonna say uh Led Zeppelin one was actually on my list, and I had oh, really? I had no idea about that little fact. Like I didn't know why you picked this particular topic. Okay. I had no idea, but I put Led Zeppelin one down because I'm I'm actually a huge fan of those first four albums in particular. I mean, after that they kind of drifted off and got uh, weird in a bad way to me. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but I I particularly like those first four and. Um, and I, I was going to mention that, so that's interesting. That's uh, that's cool. Okay, so couple runners up for for debut album. Um, <laughs> this is a little unfortunately timely. Um, I, I was going to say "Can't Buy a Thrill" by Steely Dan oh. for one of them, <laughs> and uh, that's not an endorsement Ooh. of uh, Donald Fagan. <laughs> yeah. Um, for those of you that that don't know what happened, he apparently pushed his wife into a glass uh, window or something. Yeah. Um, really unfortunate. But nonetheless... Uh, a I, great I, album. A great album, if you ask me. But the hangman is in hanging And they put you on the 
actually, that's, you know, people will cite other Steely Dan albums as their favorite, but that is my favorite of theirs, and it happened to be their debut one. So, um, And then another debut album that I love, and I'm a huge fan of this band, even though it's kind of cheesy, I think, at this point to, to be a fan. Um, but Pearl Jam, 10, um, one of my favorite debut albums, and... And not my favorite album of theirs, but I would venture to guess that it's most people's, like the general public's favorite Pearl Jam album. On three, wow. let's say our favorite Pearl Jam album. All right? <laughs> yep. One, two, three. Yep. No code. Oh! <laughs> that would be that would be two for me. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All um, right. Uh, my runner's up. Uh, the first one is uh, the debut solo album by Ryan Adams, Heartbreaker. I wish Pick me up Take me out Fuck me up Steal my records Screw all my friends They're all full of shit With a smile on your face And then do it absolutely defined sort of my freshman year in college sad sackness <laughs> to a T <laughs> and uh, something that I, I listen to still quite a bit and I enjoy and uh, my second runner-up is uh, you know, I, I, I was I was between three or four here but I was trying to think of debut albums that instantly grabbed me you know and and that really got me uh, to be interested in the band or the artist. And uh, I'm going to go with the Violent Femmes self-titled debut. Hmm. I'm a big, big Violent Femmes fan. And that first album, those first two albums, I would say, are pretty much flawless. Why can't I get just one kiss? Why can't I get just one kiss? Maybe some things I wouldn't miss If I look at your pants and I need a kiss Why can't I get just one screw? Why can't I get just one screw? Believe me, I know what to do But something won't let me make love to you So those are my runners-up. What is your number one selection? Best debut album all right so my number one for this particular question is uh it's gotta be 
the strokes. time in my life um let's see that was shortly that was like 2001 right it was 2001 yes. yeah because there was the whole 9-11 thing that yeah, went on nyc cops yeah yep 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 so um uh i would have been in high school i would have been just entering high school and um my music taste was like pretty horrible before that you know <laughs> like like I basically only knew of whatever was on the radio, and then like mm-hmm. I liked oldies too. So like nothing wrong know. with oldies. Yeah, no, that's that's the positive aspect of my childhood growing up. But um, um, uh, but then the Strokes came along, and it just like hit at probably the perfect time. I mean, I know they're kind of derivative of other bands that have come before. Like their sound wasn't necessary. Their sound was was what that point in time in history like needed you know mm-hmm. even if it was derivative you know it kind of kicked off this movement like back towards rock and roll garage like garage band type you know um like there were all sorts of bands that like came out of that um on fire you know like franz ferdinand and and the hives, the vines, like like all these bands like blew up. I feel because liars, yeah, yeah, yes. Yep, yep, yep. Sort of along with the Strokes, you know, and and that album, like, first of all, I still think it's great from front to back. Um, but but at the time, I was blown away because I thought like, wow, this is this doesn't sound like anything on the radio in bumfuck Wisconsin, you know. Um, and it's it's really catchy and really good and it's rock and roll you know and like my ninth grade mind or whatever was just so ready for something like that and it kind of launched me into this person that i am today who like actively seeks out music that's new and different from what i've listened to in the past and 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 you know just wants wants more of the things that I that haven't necessarily come before in my own sphere. Does right. that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you talked about that because for the f- first decade of its existence, I hated that album. Really? Yeah, so uh, l- let me just paint a picture for you here. I was um, 19 years old and uh, sophomore in college when it came out, and I had read all these glowing reviews, and I want to say it was Rolling Stones that said it was like the most exciting album of the last 20 years. And there's all this hype built up, and I called a bunch of local record shops in Pittsburgh, and they didn't have them. And so I had to go out to the like to the mall in the suburbs to buy this album, and I dragged a friend of mine along because he had a car. And so we went out to get it, and then I put it in his CD player, 
and I was expecting just this, I guess to me at the time, exciting meant like driving, like, like exploding out of your speakers. Uh And that, that first title track is anything but that it's like laid back and doesn't really have any dynamics and it's just like this flat line Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and uh, I really did not like that album until like a decade later when I finally gave it a proper chance. I was like, oh, this is actually quite good. Okay. Um, but to me, it was one of the more uh, clear examples of something being overhyped for me. Oh, yeah. I think that's definitely the case, even though I'm a huge fan of it. Um, uh, people spoke of it as if it changed the world, you know? Yeah. And maybe for like a month it did, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like a couple months, you know? For for me, it, it did change my perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And But at the end of the day, um, given all the music I've ever listened to now, you know, it's, it's probably um, less impactful, but... I have such fond memories of getting to know that album because it was so different. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm picturing myself in my basement playing ping pong with my old buddy, Andy, who, um, could be on either end of, uh, uh, making a murderer style, uh, documentary at this point. <laughs> uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, Andy, wherever you are, uh, I miss you, buddy. I have no idea what he's doing today. But uh, but I just remember playing ping pong with him, and he and I like bouncing along to this album, and it was like nothing we'd ever heard before. So so yeah, it 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 changed my view of things, even if ultimately it probably does seem derivative today. Well, you know, like I guess now I can appreciate it very differently than I could at that time. At that time, I was just expecting, like you know, I was working in college radio. I expected this to be you know, that would change my life because it was changing the lives of all these people I really cared about critically. Sure. And then it just it just didn't do that for me. So it's not a knock on the album. Um, I was actually going to say, for my choice, the self-titled Weezer debut. Oh. <laughs> um, sure. Which came out when I was in sixth grade and is still a hugely important album for me. You know, I can... That's an album I can pick up my guitar and I can play the entire thing front to back still. I've got... Master's Guide I've got 12-sided die I've got Kitty Pride And Nightcrawler too Waiting there for me Yes, I do I do I've got posters on the wall 
because it was a hugely important album to me. But it, when you're talking about sort of something blowing your expectations aside and changing the way you think, uh, I'm going to go with the debut album by Brazilian band Os Mutantes from uh, 1968, I believe is when it was released. Um, this is a band that I was introduced to on a mix CD made by a friend of mine, and I went back and I... Like you know, like a crazy person does sometimes. <laughs> down, got all their discography in you know a day or two, and it's this Brazilian. For those who don't know, it's a Brazilian band. It, it translates to the mutants in English, and uh, they were essentially uh, criminals in Brazil because it was illegal to be playing this type of music, and they couldn't get enough equipment imported in so that they made their own distortion pedals and things so everything sounds a little bit off from what you'd expect it to sound like I said they, uh, various members of the band, uh, as well as other of their contemporaries like uh, Gilberto Gil and uh, a few other guys, were frequently arrested for their involvement playing music and playing at youth rallies and things like that. And it's just a absolutely fascinating album that has like elements of traditional Brazilian music and. You know, these guys were big, like, Jimi Hendrix and Beatles fans. So there's elements of that. And there's also a lot of musical concrete stuff of just sort of sound collage. It, it's It still sounds totally out of place and interesting uh, almost 50 years later. Mm-hmm. So that's my pick. Nice. Os Mutantes by Os Mutantes. I have a feeling they're going to come up in a lot of your... They are going to, yes. They're, they're a very big part of my musical life uh, for the past 15 years or so. I look forward to learning more about them as we do this yeah i I can't imagine them not popping up over the course of the next few months Só mais um pedacinho. That brings us to our first album. Now, we should say, in the interest of full disclosure here, for this first one, we discussed each of our picks ahead of time. But from now on, neither of us is going to know what the other one is picking for us to listen to, <laughs> um, which is going to make things very interesting. And I, I'm very excited about that. But because we were sort of figuring out what this show was going to be, we talked about it for a bit. And so, uh, Vince, why don't you talk about what you picked for our first album of the show? Okay, so um, so th- this is going to be a very newsworthy uh 
<laughs> seriously. <laughs> Pick. That's an understatement. Um, uh, so we're going to do David Bowie's Black Star that just came out on January 8th. listening to this knows uh david bowie passed away just two days after this album came out um on the 10th and uh i think um that's gonna color our discussion of this quite a bit how how could it not right um i also just want to say for the record that we picked this uh on january 2nd I'm checking through my texts with you right now. <laughs> so we had planned this before the album was even out. Um, so we're not trying to capitalize. I, I just hope nobody listens to this and thinks we're trying to capitalize on Bowie's death. Yeah, our first show is <laughs> Bowie's it, death show. Yeah, especially because I, I would say that both of us are pretty gigantic David Bowie fans. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, his, his death hit me a lot. Um, and, and I had the unfortunate pleasure of being the one to break the news to Vince. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had the day off of work, and I got this text from Brian, and he's like, well, this is going to change our discussion. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I kind of lost it um, a little bit after that, as I'm sure you you lost it once or twice during that day. Yeah, it was like four in the morning when I found out because I I had checked my I realized I didn't set my alarm for the morning. I looked at my phone and my friend Ken texted me and said, "You recommended the new Bowie album to me, and now he's dead. Thank you, or something like that." Like basically blamed me for it. And I, I thought he was kidding, and so I had to Google it, and it was it was real. And I actually woke up my wife to tell her. Oh man! And uh, it didn't I, I I didn't get teary then, but later on. Throughout the day, a couple of times, I got choked up at various points. I've been listening to almost exclusively Bowie since this happened. Yeah, yeah, pretty much um, me too. Um, so if whoever I pick at the end of this show for next week, or for two weeks from now, mm-hmm. um, kicks the bucket, then we're going to have to just trash this whole <laughs> <Agreed>. podcast. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no. Um, I So I think for our discussion... Uh, of the album obviously it's going to color our discussion quite a bit and the album itself is so steeped in in what we now know was an ongoing battle with with cancer that he was uh, fighting um that the you know there will be plenty of talk about his life and death and what it all means but um i think our discussion is probably going to just you know try to keep it to the album and and you know so many people have written and already said enough about david bowie that i could never everything has already been said i could not come up with anything new other than my own personal experience with him um with his music i should say you know if if you want to read 
a great take on him. Read Bradford Cox's the thing that he wrote, or yeah, you know, any of the other um, musicians that were affected by him or knew him. You know, um, I, I I don't think we could come close to to. You did write something, Brian. You want to plug that? No, it's all right. <laughs> okay. All if right. you find. If you follow me on Twitter, you can go back and look for something I wrote about Bowie. I just the way I process things is to write about it sometimes. So yeah, yeah. I just but you know it it was it was purely an emotional thing, and uh, you know it's one of those things where I feel like I'm kicking myself for the couple of times in my life I probably could have seen Bowie and didn't. Hmm. Uh, not not that there were many of those times, but he was touring in the early aughts. And I was old enough with enough disposable income and living in a major metropolitan area that I could have probably made it happen, and I didn't. And that's a real, that's my biggest regret through all of this. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, enough about yes. my mistakes. <laughs> this. Um, so when we picked this album to talk about, what was it about? Cause we had both heard, I guess... At least Black Star by this point, if not Lazarus as well. Yeah. So what, what was it about the original, the initial hearing of Black Star that interested you? Well, well, first of all, it's David Bowie. That goes yes. that goes without saying. So anytime a Bowie album comes out, you're gonna pick it to talk about in a show like this, I think. Um, but uh, I I also thought going back a little bit. His, his previous album came out a couple years ago, The Next Day. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed that album, but I didn't... I wouldn't put it among his best, and I, I wouldn't call it, like, a re- return to form or a comeback or anything. And It very much picked up where reality left off a decade earlier. Sure, yeah. Which is crazy that he could take a, a decade off and not <laughs> really have his sound change that much. Yeah, well, the dude's talented, you know, what can I say? Yeah. Um, but then listening to Black Star and, and watching the video and reading about what he was trying to do with his producer, um, Tony Visconti, um, they, they, were, they were clearly trying to explore something very symbolic and strange which we would later, you know, find out kind of what that was all about. But um, they they wanted to avoid rock and roll too. That's the quote that that the producer kept using. You know, they really wanted to avoid rock and roll. Uh, Bowie had been listening to Kendrick Lamar. And he wanted some sort of sound that wasn't rock and roll, but that utilized jazz and and um you know like hip-hop beats almost you know but in a different way and you could you could 
hear that all on Black Star, and I think it, it it was the most interesting thing that I've heard from Bowie, you know, in a couple decades. I thought immediately. Yeah, you know, I I think that one of the perks of being Bowie, if it, as it were, is that he could do anything he wanted to, especially at this point. You know, he's nothing left to prove to anybody. And and yet, since, I guess, maybe Earthling in the mid-90s, he hadn't been trying anything radically new. That, that's not to, to, to shit on what he did. I think he still made some excellent music in that time. But my favorite Bowie is always the Bowie that's trying something really totally different than he's done before. And so um, when I heard Black Star, the title track, it did seem completely new to me. It seemed like a really, really interesting, fresh take on on a pretty Bowie-ish theme. You know, um, I, I really enjoyed it. It really spoke to me initially. And then, I don't know about you, the first time I heard Lazarus was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert when... Um, so, so for those that don't know, Bowie's music is being used in a stage show in New York called Lazarus right now. It's an off-Broadway play. And um, there are four songs from the musical that were recorded for Black Star but not released on Black Star. And the fifth song recorded was Lazarus. And so they had Michael C. Hall, who was currently the lead in the Broadway production, the off-Broadway production, rather, of Lazarus, who folks might know as Dexter or from uh, Six Feet Under, he actually sang Lazarus on The Late Show. So the first time I heard it, I didn't hear it from Bowie's lips. I heard it from Michael C. Hall's lips. Um, did you hear Bowie's version first, or did you even not see that Late Show performance? I, I didn't actually watch that, no. It's worth checking out. I will now. Yeah. Um, but so let's let's skip ahead now to Friday when we first heard the album in its entirety. What were your uh, initial thoughts of the record? Um, I I was fascinated at, first of all, how um, concise it is. Not in length, but in track number. Mm -hmm. You know, there's only seven tracks. It's still like a 40-minute long album. Yeah. But, but... It occurs to me that it's if it's not a concept album, it's very much playing on extremely similar themes throughout. Um, the exception, I suppose, uh, there are a couple of tracks that Bowie based on an old play. Um, so the second track is "Tis a Pity She Was a Whore," and um, Sue or in a season of crime is track four. Mm -hmm. And those are both based on John Ford's play from like the 1630s called, I think, I think it's called tis a pity. She was a whore or something. Or, I think it's slightly different though. Yeah. Like, there's like she a, a whore, but it's like a weird, um, right. You know, contraction in there or something. Yeah. Right. And yeah, tis a pity. She's a whore. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, aside from those two songs, everything else kind of, follows this very similar um, style and exploration of theme. And it's very... It, I, it occurred to me that it's very dark and mysterious and that there's a lot more going on that f felt at the time, to me, 
sinister, and because it was, uh, we would later find out that it was essentially a record he was writing, knowing he was dying. Um, you know, it it really felt like something we were going to be chipping away at for a while. Mm-hmm. And then just two days later, it just so happens that, and they, and certainly we're not done chipping away at it, but right. so much of it makes so much more sense, you know. But I love albums like that, so I was immediately intrigued, um, especially by the darkness, because it really is kind of an unrelenting, you know. It it can be a humorous album at times, I think, here and there, um, especially on uh, "Girl Loves Me." which mm-hmm. is the fifth track and we'll talk about I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit but um uh but for the most part it's a very like foreboding and overpowering album of dread you know kind of um yeah and I think you felt that before you ever knew anything about what he was going through I just want to point out that that you had said something to me that was crazy on Maybe oh. Thursday or Friday. Oh no, don't! <laughs> but you had heard, you had read this someplace, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had read that there was a rumor that Bowie was going to kill himself after this was released. Where did you hear that? Um, I, it was in the comment section of some article about. I don't know. I don't know how I could trace it, but it was in the comment section of some article about Black Star. I um, mean, that's. You know that's obviously not what happened, but it was still when I when I first found that at four in the morning, I was like, "Shit, was Vince right?" <laughs> um, which would be an even crazier end to the story than the one we already got, uh, but but far less poetic and far less powerful, I think. Um, and yeah. that's you know that's just I guess the reality of it. But anyway, uh, well, my think, first go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think that speaks to what the album felt like to somebody who didn't know what was going on, you know, whoever, whoever said that or whoever heard that obviously felt extremely strongly about the songs that were coming off of this album as being some sort of really dreadful thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether to be glad that it was this way and not the other way or just to, you know, it helps us make sense of it, I guess. You know. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, my initial first reaction was very similar to yours. I was, I was really taken with both Black Star and Lazarus before the record came out, and then I, I really, really loved on first listen. Tis a pity she was a whore. I thought it was a really interesting, bold choice and then the album just keeps getting more and more interesting from there to me um you know you singled out in a conversation we had earlier today dollar days Mm -hmm. which to me sounds the most traditionally like bowie of any song on the record would you agree with that yeah i think so yeah dollar days survival checks on a scratching tails the necks i'm falling down it's nothing to me Nothing to see If I never see The English evergreens I'm running to It's nothing to me It's nothing to see
and I, I really that song on first listen really stood out to me, uh, as did uh, "Girl Loves Me." But "Girl Loves Me" is uh, I think it's probably the the funniest track on the album overall. Although there are some funny lines, I actually found myself laughing quite a bit through some of these. Like uh, in "Tisabidi She's a Whore," he says. Um, and then she punched me like a dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep, yep. And yep. and Lazarus, he's looking for her ass or your ass. He's looking he for says. your ass, which I, you know, it made me laugh, but you think about it too, and it's it's a potential Christ metaphor, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of that going on. And I think Bowie's always kind of done that. Absolutely. Um, you know, making puns where they're funny upon first glance and perhaps deeper when you think about them a little more but yeah you're right i mean i i for for a death album this is surprisingly playful at times yeah yeah um one thing i do want to mention is the guitarist on the album well let's back up one second yeah so let's get, we, we need to give some props to the the instrumentation on this so, yes yeah so bowie gathered a collection of new york city jazz musicians to play on the album and so let's just run them down real quickly um we have let's see um donnie mcclazen mccaslin on saxophone flutes and woodwind jason linder lindner on piano and keyboards uh tim lafay on bass uh mark juliana on drums ben monder on guitar and uh, Tony Visconti played some some synthetic strings, and James Murphy played some uh, some percussion. We also have some background vocals by Aaron Tonkin. Um, so Bowie assembled this this group of downtown New York musicians to play on the album, and I think for the most part it's a very very inspired choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they don't. They don't hide in the background. I mean, they all get their their chance to shine, especially the sax. Um, yes, yes. Oh man, there are some like saxophone solos on this that are just killer. Like, boy, you'll get to the end of a verse or something, and then the sax will just rip for like thirty seconds. You know? Yeah. And it's so good. It's so it's so inspired. It's like nothing he's ever made before. And uh, I, I read one review. I forget now who said it, which was that. At times, the saxophones are too smooth and the guitars are too shreddy, but that's what makes them both cool. Yeah, I mean... And I, I can't really disagree with that. Um, there are moments when, when I feel that the, the saxophone, the, the woodwinds in general, get a little bit smooth jazz-ish, <laughs> but I don't really mind that in this context. No, no, it's, you know, it's interesting because almost every one of these songs have has sort of like some sort of like shuffling um rhythm or beat to them in the mm -hmm. background with a lot of like prominent drumming and then it sort of gives way to this like yeah like really smooth jazz like riff and and for whatever reason that transition just works every time for me like i was never i could have done with more of it you know like mm -hmm. i could i'll take more sax anytime well, I, I think that there's been a bit of a cultural shift on that. I feel like the Destroyer album, Kaput, let everybody enjoy sort of smooth sounds for a little while. I know you and I know the score. I 
and maybe chipped away at some of our hipster dread or whatever. Um, but the, the the person I want to talk about a little bit is uh, Tim LaFay on bass, who the bass on Lazarus is, I mean, unbelievable. And as a, as a bass player, I really, really love what he does all throughout the album. Um, the only one of these musicians that I was familiar with, aside of James, aside from James Murphy of LCD Sound System, was uh, Ben Monder. I, uh, I'm a fan of a couple of bands that he's played in in the past. Um, he played on an album by Guillermo Klein I have called Los Gauchos 2. And I forget even how I acquired that album, but it, it's a kind of um, Latin jazz album. And But the album I really know him from is uh, I'm a big fan of the jazz trio The Bad Plus. And bassist Reed Anderson did a solo album in 2000 called The Vastness of Space, and Ben Monder plays on that, but he really is very subdued on that album. Whereas here, I mean, that guitar is pretty much out front the entire time. You know, it's he is really playing a ton of guitar on the album, and I think doing, I mean, doing justice to the incredible guitar talents that Bowie has had in the past. Yeah. You know, Mick Ronson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Reeves Gabriel's. Um, you know, there's Bowie has never been shy about having great guitar players play with him. I think Monder fits right in there. Yeah, uh, sure. Again, maybe a little bit sort of technique heavy, you know, uh, more so than a lot of other players that Bowie's played with recently, but quite, quite impressive stuff. Yeah. Um, is there a, if you had to, you know, give somebody, you know, one or two songs to listen to, which would be your, your one or two you'd highlight? Oh man, so so, it's it's easy to give them Black Star and Lazarus because those were the first two, quote unquote, singles from this, mm-hmm. and they they have the music videos that accompany them, and I think they're the clearest example of this being Bowie's, you know, cancer record. Yeah. Um, but, uh, just to be different <laughs> and weird. I am going to recommend Dollar Days, the aforementioned mm-hmm. Dollar Days, and I Can't Give Everything Away, which are the last two songs on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, first of all, I think both of these songs touch on his death a little bit, um, especially I Can't Give Everything Away. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they really, they, they really um, are a good companion for one another. Uh Dollar Days kind of slides right into I Can't Give Everything Away. And uh, they sort of have a similar um, propulsion to them. 
and uh, and I'm actually reminded this is a this is a comparison that I wanted to make that is probably going to sound trite and it's gonna make I'm gonna get a lot of nasty emails from our listener about this, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they remind me a lot of late Radiohead, like King of Limbs, Radiohead, where okay. like Tom York and 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 uh, Greenwood are like. Um, doing a lot with um, electronics and it's it's very it's it's this very dark sound but there is like a danceable backbeat to it mm-hmm. and I feel like both of these songs have that same sort of like dark propulsive kind of dread you know Mm -hmm. filled with dread sort of thing with added jazz runs then in both of these songs right yeah um but i think i think you know black star and lazarus are going to get all the attention but these two are equally about sort of his view on the end of his life um Mm -hmm. i think dollar days is particularly a sad vocal from him, you know, like yeah. there's a lot of pain and longing and, and he's, I, I love, there's a line, um, about how he'd love to push their backs against the grain and fool them all again and again, which just seems so, I just got chills saying that by the way, because it's so Bowie, you know, like, yep, like that's what he's done all his life, you know? Mm-hmm. And here it is. And, and, he says, I'm dying to, I'm trying to like one more time. He's giving us this, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then to follow it up with, I can't give everything away. It's almost a, it's almost a contrast, even though it's very much from the same sort of sense of dread that, um, you know, he, 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 he knows he's dying. He has cancer. But he can't. He can't give everything away. You know, like he can't. He's not going to be able to. First of all, mm-hmm. even if he wanted to, and second of all, I don't think as as much as we've seen Bowie's personality come out in a lot of different ways, he's never given everything away. You know, there was always yeah. some sort of mystery surrounding him. Um. And and I think that comes out in this song too. And the two of them work as a really nice pair. They're my two favorite songs on the album and and I just love how it ends. And just killer sax solos in yes. in I can't give everything away. Just I love that song. It's great. Seeing more and feeling less. Saying no but meaning yes. This is all I ever meant. That's the message that I sent. I 
your what are your favorite? I know Lazarus is Lazarus is my favorite. Yeah, I I know that's a predictable answer and a little bit lame maybe, but um, even if it was an instrumental, I think Lazarus would be my favorite piece on the album. It, it does a lot of things I really like. From the saxophones harmonizing with each other in the beginning to that bass line, um, it's it's my favorite song on the album. And I also think that it's there's a reason that Bowie chose that to be the second single, and there's a reason that Bowie in the video very much you you for those that haven't seen the video, very much Bowie is lying in a hospital bed, and then it appears that his soul comes out writes one last note and then goes and dies. And it's just this incredible visual that goes along. I can't, now that I've seen the video, I can't untie that image from the song. And I kind of hate that about videos, actually. I, I like to sort of have your own interpretation of things, but when it's so perfect and so so meaningful, it's hard to to then think of anything else in that moment. Uh, so Lazarus definitely gets my my pick the other one for me is uh girl loves me Mm. and this is a song we both mentioned it being kind of funny but i actually read it as being very sad too so uh, for those that haven't heard it the the sort of refrain of the song is a repeated line of where the fuck did monday go And I feel like that could be a commentary on just how time appear, time is running out for him, you know. And he's looking back. Where the fuck did Monday go? You know, where where is this time going? And I think if you if you read it that way, it, it, it's it's an impossibly sad song. Yeah. Uh, um. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, the only song on the album that I don't really have an affinity for is uh, Sue. Or in a season of crime. That's my least favorite song on the album, by a truckload. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. Although I do admire, um, when I when I first heard the album, I thought, what, you know, what is the, you know, like, <laughs> like I don't know what this is supposed to be. And then I, re- mm-hmm. I, you know, read that it's the story of this play, you know, that that goes yeah. that goes with "Tis a Pity She's a Whore," and it makes it makes perfect sense now. I just don't think it. I don't love the song, but more than anything else, I just don't think it fits. Well, it's one of two songs that was recorded. Right. That, that, it was written before the album. The rest of the album was written. Right, right. So it makes uh, sense that it wouldn't fit. Yeah. Um, I I like that he put it on there, like, you know, to give it to us to sure. listen to. You know, I'm not going to complain about that. But just as a conceptual piece... It, it does kind of stick out like a yeah. sore thumb. Yeah. And um and I I like Girl Loves Me a lot, but can I can I just say I have never thought that that like Clockwork Orange slang stuff ever sounds good. I, <laughs> I'll know? agree with that. You know, like like <laughs> I I like the song and it and it does make me laugh and I love the the um 
line about where the fuck did Monday go. But yeah, some of that like uh, NADSAT slang just doesn't <laughs> like. All right, I get it. That's fine, you know. But yeah, but I don't necessarily like. I'm not gonna play that song for somebody because I don't want me to have to explain to them what it is. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but yes, I do. I do like that song too. It's you um, know what it is. It's it's very much like Bowie talked about how he listened to um, Kendrick Lamar and yeah. and to Pimp a Butterfly and uh, a bunch of other hip-hop, you know, between his last album and this one. And that is very much like, what if the Droogs did a rap song? <laughs> you know, what would it sound yeah. like? Yeah. And, and uh, turns out it's not better than anything that's on to Pimp a Butterfly. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could talk about this album all day. I think we kind of have to close our conversation here with a discussion of where it falls in your personal list of Bowie albums. I mean, I'm not asking for an exact rating, but you know, sort of among Bowie's records, where does this where does this stand for you? Yeah, um boy, you know, knowing knowing what we know now, um I think it's such an achievement, you know. Um, I mean, Tony Visconti essentially said he knew he was dying the whole time. He was making this as a farewell album. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's even different than trying to record as much music as you can before you die. He wanted this to be the definitive statement of his death. Yeah, yeah. And that's incredible. For sure. I mean, to me, that transcends, like, any ranking that I would put – I mean – I'm not going to listen to this album and enjoy it the same way that I do Station to Station, you know? Right. Or Low. Um, by the way, I think Low might be my favorite David Bowie album, just for how like weird and and mm-hmm. and uh, you know what an achievement it was. But um, Heroes is mine. But... Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's from that same yeah, era. Same, I think the Berlin, the Berlin trilogy. There. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that it would probably be near the bottom of the top 10, actually, if I were, if I had to rank it, mm-hmm. um, behind stuff like, uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, Hunky Dory, um, Aladdin Sane, Young American Station to Station, Low, Heroes, then it would probably be Black Star, somewhere in there. Next to Diamond Dogs, I don't know. I'm not. I was never as much into anything that happened after Heroes. Okay. You know, I love Scary Monsters a lot. Okay. And I like Lodger, you know, fine too. I would. My ranking is pretty similar to yours. I would say the bottom, the bottom third of the top ten or twelve. Sure. Yeah. And for somebody, you know nearly 50 years into his recording career to make an album this good is pretty unprecedented. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, for sure. I, I certainly didn't think it was going to be, you know, and I thought this before he died too. Um, and, and I do think it's a better album knowing that he was done. Di- like people are probably going to say that's a cop out, you know, like, Oh, you know, 
people are going to remember this because he died, but it is a product of his death, you know? Yeah. It really is. And you can't separate that, and I don't think you should. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with having an album's mythology be a part of its, um, you know, success or failure. So yeah, you know, I, I think for all of us, we contextualize the album in the conditions in which we hear it. And so whether this album to you is the, the, the Bowie death album or the album I was listening to when Bowie died, I don't think that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if I'm trying to think of some, like, like, like here's a perfect example, like Captain Beefheart. Stopped making <laughs> albums in the early 80s, right? And so I guess technically Ice Cream for Crow is the last Captain Beefheart album. But I don't think there's anything about that album that necessarily talks about mortality or the end or anything like that. And so it shouldn't be it shouldn't be considered the same way that Bowie's last album is. Because Bowie's, Bowie's album that he made before he died was about dying. You can't, you can't unhinge that. Mm-hmm. It's there. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> Stop Jeez. judging us. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... No, I, I've already heard some people backing on it for that reason. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're And, you know... They're animals, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you want to play along at home... We're gonna we're gonna play we're gonna play one last bit from Black Star now, um, but if you want to pause this podcast and either go to your uh, streaming provider of choice or hopefully pull out from your record collection the next album we're gonna talk about we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a break from our recording here and listen to it a few times, uh, so we'll, we'll be back in just a minute. But please join us in our discussion of Most Def and Talib Kweli, our Black Star coming up in just a minute. And we are going to be discussing Mos Def and Talib Kweli, our Black Star. This album was released in 1998, 
Uh, it was the first and, as it stands, only full-length release from Black Star. Um, Vince, what's your relationship with these with these rappers? Are you are, would you call yourself a fan of either one, a casual fan, a, a hardcore fan? Where do you stand with their music? Yeah, um, uh, actually, this album was my introduction to both of them, and uh, as far as Most Def goes, I actually know his work more as an actor, you know, which is which is kind of silly, but I think he's good at that, you know. And uh, and uh, Talib Kweli, I actually really like his solo work. Um, I think I've gone more down that pathway than I had with with Most Def. Interesting, because I've gone more down the Most Def uh, path. Oh, okay. However, so I haven't heard I, before we, we picked this album. I hadn't heard this album in a couple of years, and now going back, I want to get more into the Talib Kweli stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I actually, I, I I downloaded it at the end of last year. Uh, he released a free album last year called Fuck the Money, uh-huh. but I have yet to listen to it. So I gotta tell the truth, this is smart decision Capitalism is a cataclysm White collar crime is a bad decision And the bankers will routinely crash the system with Quickly get the ass back in prison Need money to eat, need money to live Need money to keep, need money to give When pursuit of the money is your only goal Then you lose control, then you lose your soul Dollars and cents to rob our children of the innocence So in a sense, we come to our nation's capital to cash a check According to Dr. King when he saw it clear in his dream We built the pyramids, they built the pyramid schemes so one of these days I do have to, uh, I do have to sit down and really do that. Um, but let's let's just set the stage here for a second. What were you doing in? Uh, let's see what month it was. What were you doing in September of 1998? Um, well, I was 11 years old. Okay. September, so I was probably you know going back to school. That's what sixth grade. Um, about yeah yeah i yeah i wasn't listening to to this back then that's for sure <laughs> um yeah no i was listening to uh crappy uh top 40 radio probably and um yeah so i yeah i, I, I was a youngster how about you uh i was i had turned 16 just a few months earlier um i was uh at the tail end of the second time of dating my now wife. Oh. <laughs> we had gotten together and broken up a number of times at this point already, and we were about to break up again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was a junior in high school, uh, just starting my junior year, um, playing in a band, I guess, at this point. I was, I was probably playing guitar still in a band I, before I started playing bass in bands. And just generally being, you know, being 16, so being probably obnoxious. <laughs> Um, probably still had my bottom braces. Maybe just got those off. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's about it for me. Um, so, uh, you had mentioned that this album was your introduction to both, uh, both rappers' careers. When did you first hear this record? Oh, probably not until, oh, if it, if it was, if it wasn't for freshman year of college, it was probably real late in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly, um, but 
I I was never much of a hip hop fan growing up because I wasn't the most hip hop I was exposed to in say elementary school slash junior high was like Will Smith, you know. Yeah. Which hey, I'm not not. I mean, he is a hit maker. But, uh, you know, he, he introduced the Willennium, and, and... Which we're still living we're in. We're still living in the Willennium. Um, uh, but, yeah, it wasn't until until late high school, um, senior year of high school, where I started listening to, to some off-the-beaten-path hip-hop that wouldn't necessarily be played on Top 40. Um, and I probably didn't hear this album until college, I would say. But... What I thought at the time, and what I what still occurs to me today, is how this thing is like almost twenty years old, and it's just as relevant today as it was back then. Yeah. Um, e- extremely so. Unfortunately, so in some ways, you know. Yes. Uh, um, I, I I do want to want to put sort of a disclaimer out there. Of course, this is the record two white liberals would pick to listen to. Like, I just, I, I feel, I feel like that has to be stated here. Like, you know, yes, this is like it's socially conscious hip hop. There is not like they're not rapping about money and guns, you know. But I like so, that too. I, I love that, and that's like. But again, like, of course, it's what two white liberals would choose yeah. as we, their hip hop album to discuss. Make no mistake, we are very white. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, um, but but you're right. I mean, I think a track like "Definition," which is definitely my favorite track on the album, um, I feel like that that you know sort of it's it's talking in the relative recent past about the deification of dead rappers, of you know specifically of Biggie Smalls and Tupac, and uh, you know it's. I don't want to say it, it's a lighthearted approach to the to the violence in hip hop, but it certainly doesn't treat it as reverently as I think other people were probably treating the same subject matter at that time. Yeah, no, if I that mean, makes I, sense. I think if anything, this it's this is an anti violence album. Oh, absolutely, Is very much a complex story, you know. It's a, yes. it's a, 
it's a complicated it's complicated subject matter i think about um the song respiration mm-hmm. towards the end which is i think probably my favorite on the album and that's sort of it's a it's about the city and um what it's like to live in the inner city where you know um there's sort of a conflict between um people that want to live in a city and yet all the problems that that show up there like uh drug dealing and violence and things like that you know it it mm-hmm. it shows it shows the city as a complicated um place to be you know it's not there's not a true sense of um this is bad or this is good you know it's just it is what it is and this is what we need to be aware of and this is what we can do to make it better but not you know without being like really overt and corny about it the new moon rode high in the crown of the metropolis shining like who on top of this people were sussling arguing and bustling gangsters of god thumb hardcore hustling i'm wrestling with words and ideas my ears prick thinking what will transmit the scribes can apply to transcript yo this ain't no time where the usual is suitable tonight alive let's describe the inscrutable the Indisputable. We New York, the narcotics, draped in metal and fiber optics. We're mercenaries who paid to trade hot stock tips for profits. Thirsty criminals, thick pockets. Hard knuckles on the second hands of working class watches. Skyscrapers is colossus. The cost of living is preposterous. Stay alive, you play and die, no options. No Batman and Robin. Can't tell between the cops and the robbers. Yeah, and I think that's that if you just described the themes of the record to somebody who'd never heard it, I think corny is the word that would pop to mind. Yeah. Because it does sound, you know, <laughs> you know, just the idea of rapping about positivity makes you think like a Nickelodeon special, you, you know, it just doesn't sound like it's something that's necessarily going to be all that sonically interesting. But I think the fact that these are two incredible MCs really helps. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, they can they are among the best rappers alive then and now, and yeah. so to have them so, and I don't just mean best in terms of technical abil- ability. Like you know, we all know Eminem can rap very fast, but it doesn't make him a very great rapper necessarily. I feel like these guys write such interesting rhymes and deliver them so effectively that it does sort of cut the the corniness. But I, not that I think there's much there, but it cuts the potential for corniness. Yeah, yeah. Rhymes. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think the album's corny at all. I think. Um, I think what. Yeah, what you just said was right. Like. Um, you know, socially conscious rap could easily be a stereotype, you know? Yes. And that's not what this is at all. You know, it doesn't, I don't think it even approaches that, even though by description, that's what you might call it. Right. Um, and, and, and to add to what you're saying about, about them as MCs, um, uh, I think they're just so smart too, like as far as the way they use references, Mm -hmm. if you think about, um, uh, the second track, Astronomy, Eighth yeah. Light, uh, that thing is chock full of like re- references to other black art, whether it's uh, poetry or um, or novels, visual art, visual art um, other musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's just so many references that are woven in uh, that have double meaning and things like that, and and they just work so well that if you didn't even catch the reference, it still makes its point. Yep. You know, Absolutely. and and I just think that that is so, like lots of rappers do that, but um, very few of them do it so deftly. You know, mm-hmm. this is just such a deft album. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that I think is is really positive about it is like you know astronomy is that song was all about using the word black as a point of pride mm, mm-hmm. you know um and and i feel like i mean it, again we are two very very white gentlemen talking about this but i think that so many times that word is um especially by white people used as a uh if not a derogatory ter- term a term that separates yeah. People, you know what I'm saying? And and so the fact that there you know, there's a line in there like I wanna say it's black like um, is my my baby's hair like it's the color of my true love's hair. Black is the color of my true love's hair. Stars are bright shining, hot balls of hair. Black like my baby girl stare. Black like the veil that the Muslimina wear. Black like the planet that they fear. Why they scared? Black like the slave ship girl they brought us here. Black like the cheeks that are roadways for tears. They leave black faces well traveled with years. Black like assassin crosshairs. Blacker than my granddaddy armchair. He never really got no time to chill there. Cause his life was warfare. See, on the front lines of blacks is all there. Black like the perception of who or welfare. Black like faces at the bottom of the well. I've been there before to bring the light and heat it up like Lacosina. Like yeah. Make what I imagine happen, but maybe I'm just a dreamer. I love rocking tracks like, it is like you know, It just, it just uses, it's continuously recontextualizing the word black throughout it. It's just great. It's, it's, it's so smart and it's so well done. And what's crazy, and I did not realize this because, you know, I heard this album when I was in college also, but it was only a couple years old when I was in college. Like I probably heard it in 2003, let's say. Uh, this was the first record that most people would have heard Talib Kweli on. Sure, yeah. You know, and I, I kind of thought he was already something before this. And he really, you know, he was he had underground credentials, but didn't. this is probably the first time a relatively mainstream audience would have heard him. And what a, what a debut from him. Yeah. I yeah. mean, incredibly complex and incredibly mature rhymes. And how old was he? He was... Yeah, he was like 25 or 23 when this came out. Yeah. You know, it makes me feel like a slacker. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, the other tracks. Well, uh, let, me, let me back up, actually. One of the things that I really like about this album is that it, it does not lean too heavily on skits or interludes. Which is, I think, uh, an epidemic among rap, rap albums. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm really not a fan of that, typically. I also think it's good that there's a couple of guest appearances, but it's mainly just, you know, I'm buying this album to hear these two guys rap. Yeah. And so it's nice that they are the sort of the focal point of the uh, of the of the verses on the album. Um, to me, the first, you know, we kind of leave intro on its own because it's just a little introduction. But the first five. Uh, complete songs, Astronomy, Definition, Redefinition, Children's Story, and Brown Skin Lady are just a staggering one after another after another great, great songs. Yeah. Um, 
to me the 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 the, the definition redefinition back to back is is incredibly powerful and you know it's it's interesting because I think the lyrics to definition are a little bit more um Definition looks more carefully at sort of the problems in hip hop, but redefinition has a a much harder edge tone. And if you just listen to it without, if you listen to it tonally and not lyrically, you would think that redefinition is the the darker side of that. But I don't think lyrically that bears out. I think you're right, and and the fact that they're, the fact that they contain, um, repetitive lyrics between the two, mm-hmm. um, just kind of highlights that. The first the first time I listened to this album, I remember not even knowing that they were two different songs, and I thought it was right. cool how. Th- it kind of melded into it into it something else in the second half, and then I realized, oh, one is almost a response to the other, and yeah. it was meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there another? What are some other tracks you really like, like in the album? You mentioned that um, respiration. Uh, Respiration's your favorite. What, what other tracks stood out to you? So, so I definitely agree with you as far as those five in a row right at the start. Um, but I also really love the last three. So mm-hmm. Respiration, Thieves in the Night, uh, Twice in a Lifetime. Um, I think that's a really cool trio of three very different songs, um, especially the last one, which which features some other guests mm-hmm. uh, from the raucous entertainment um, sort of... Collective. Gr- yeah, collective. That's, yeah... Um, Look at me try to search for a rap word. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, True. <laughs> yep. Yes. Um, and and uh, I think those are just three incredibly strong, incredibly different songs to end on mm-hmm. that do a really good job of um, keeping the album's mission statement at the forefront, but at the end of the out. Al- you know, what, what yes. you get up front it lasts until the end really yeah um and... it's interesting you say that because i feel like the album does kind of lull in the middle uh from b-boys will b-boys which i think has a couple of cool little moments in it through yo yeah mm-hmm. which is the only sort of real short uh you know interlude type piece on the album outside of the introduction i feel like in that area the production starts to feel a little bit um tired even though all those tracks are are produced by different people i feel like in general it's just that's the part that's the album that the part of the album that lulls and maybe that's because those first five songs are so great and the last three are so great that the middle kind of drags a little bit but uh, that's the part of the album i find just a little bit uh it doesn't hold up quite as well to the rest of it yeah i think i don't think it's as ambitious as all the other stuff either that's probably you know, very true yeah which um which is not to knock it. I mean, it's it. 
these are talented guys. Um, Absolutely. I just think I th- those are less memorable as far as the themes and the mm-hmm. the storytelling on the album is concerned. Um, yeah. Uh, I I do want to mention Common as uh, the guest on Respiration mm-hmm. because I'm a fan of Common. Well, yes, older Common, <laughs> as it yes. were. Um, and I think that is that is one of his stronger um, uh, guest spots. But yes. also anything he's ever done, I think it's one of the strongest things he's ever done. It's a great verse, yeah. It's a great verse, and it's a great – that was also my first impression of him, and that's a great first impression. Yes. Yo, on the amen corner, I stood looking at my former hood, felt this spirit in the wind, knew my friend was gone for good, dude. Dirt on the casket, the hurt, I couldn't mask it, mix it down, emotion, struggle, I hadn't mastered. I choreographed seven steps to heaven, inhale, wait in the exhale and make the bread leaven. Better enough Cold War, it's a guy I go for, what I know or what's known. So some days I take the bus home, just to touch home, from the crib I spend much strong. Sat by the window with a clutch stone, listening to shorties cuss long. Young girls with weak minds, but they butt strong. I, I so think I it's really interesting to look at this album in the, uh... In the context of 1998, like I, I did this before, I pulled up the top 100 singles of 1998, mm-hmm. and I was looking at what hip hop songs were on this list. Um, you know, Will Smith's getting jiggy with it. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, was huge. Been around the world by Puff Daddy. Um, what else? Uh, there's a couple more that were on here. Uh, Let's ride by Montel Jordan and Master P. <laughs> Uh, what you want by Mace? Make him say uh by Master P. And then a song that I never thought we'd have to talk about again, but um, come with me. Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking that song was the coolest, and then I <laughs> then I found out it was a Led Zeppelin song originally. Uh, but you know, it's just, it's amazing when you look at what was popular at that time, that was sort of the biggest time in hip hop where you weren't bragging necessarily about, I feel like it, it was a different level of bragging about money. Like Puff Daddy was, was rapping about having, not just having a lot of money to throw around, but having mansions, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was such a commercially uh, rich time for hip hop that there were people becoming literal multimillionaires with with very little back catalog. And then you have these two young kids from Brooklyn putting out this album, and the themes couldn't be any more different. Hmm. And I kind of understand why maybe this wasn't a, a commercial success at the time, because it was so different than what mainstream hip-hop was, was trying to say. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, and the sound, I think the sound is so low key by, yes. by comparison. You know, absolutely, uh, the production's great on the album, but um, there, there, it's not very showy at all. No, and there's there's not a lot of like sung hooks on it. Yeah, you know, there there's not a big um, like another another big song from that year was the. Uh, from the Bullworth soundtrack, Ghetto Superstar. Oh, yeah. Which had you know had Maya on it singing the hook, and then and then you know a couple of guys from the Fugees doing verses on it. But you know that was sort of the hip hop model of the time. This this big hooky section, and then you know verses that were more traditionally hip hop. And this doesn't fall into that trap at all, really. Uh, not that anything wrong with that. You know, I think there's a lot of good hip hop that follows that exact model, but it's just certainly different than what these guys were trying to do here. Totally. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the album before we sort of dig into the connection between this and David Bowie's Black Star? Um, no, no, I don't think so. I, I'm glad you picked it though, because I, it was nice to get back to this. Um, I remembered maybe about half of it Mm -hmm. pretty well from, from college, but it, it, it was nice to go and be reminded of the things that I'd forgotten about it and really how good it was. I mean... I, for whatever reason, I just didn't remember how great this album really is. Yeah. I actually, uh, when we picked this, I bought the album for the first time. Uh, my, one of my roommates in college had the album. And so that's, that's how I first encountered it was, was through him. And then, um, you know, I, I've, I've listened to it a number of times, like on Spotify in the last couple of years, but I, I actually own it now and I'm glad that I do own the album now. Yeah. So, um, so, do we think, you know, one of the things we talked about with this podcast was trying to find connections between the albums we picked? Aside from the name, is there anything that you see as being uh, connective between Blackstar and Blackstar? Um, well, I, I don't know how, like, superficial or anything we want to get, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Go for it. The, the, uh, the, the intro starts off with a little... Um, a little jazzy, um, I think, piano riff mm-hmm. um, done by Weldon Irvine, and um, that just that just reminded me of like the fact that Bowie's Black Star has jazz all over it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then a- along with that, a, a lot of uh, Bowie's Black Star is backed by. Um, what could be considered some some darker hip hop type beats, mm-hmm. um, which you definitely hear on this too, um, obviously. Yes. So so well, they don't sound at all alike. There, there's there's a, an inspirational connection there, I think. Yeah, um, I, I was going to bring up the jazz connection too. How uh, they're both very much New York albums. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, well, not a lot, a fair amount of the lyrics here are, are about Brooklyn. 
throughout the record. And, you know, David Bowie lived in lower Manhattan, but there's a lot of sort of New York elements to it. And there's, there's sort of the, uh, like you said, the undercurrent of jazz and jazz is not a new influence in hip hop or in rock and roll. But I think that both these albums were letting jazz influence it differently than maybe other artists of the same time were doing. Um, so I definitely found that in common. I also found uh, in common that both, you know, future records by these two artists would have a ton more guests and a ton more uh, stylistic diversions on it than is found here. This is a relatively straightforward hip hop record. And I feel like Bowie's albums in the past, especially of recent past, have not always had such a core band playing on it. Whereas Blackstar has a very clear ensemble that plays on just about every track. And so there's sort of the, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? There's a, um, there's a palette that is very clearly being used on both albums. Not similar palettes, but a palette that, that is more or less stuck to throughout the whole album. Minus a track or two on each. You know, sort of we talked last week about how uh, Sue on Blackstar does not sound like anything else on that album. And I think that there are, there are parts of this record that sound unlike anything else also. But for the most part, there's a very specific Blackstar sound to both. Yeah. Um... Interestingly, this this is the first full length Taleb Kweli record. Blackstar is the last David Bowie record. Oh, full length yeah. David Bowie record. I guess you could find a connection there. Um, yeah, I don't know. There, there, there wasn't. I, I, I don't think. Now, granted, next week could prove me completely wrong, but I don't think we're going to have too many um, Dark Side of the Moon, Wizard of, Wizard of Oz connections, you know, <laughs> where we're finding secret histories and all that. But I do think that there's, you know, this was a pretty easy comparison. And I just want to let the listeners know that I'm not always going to just picking, be picking homonyms for the <laughs> albums that will be uh, supporting Vince's records. You know, but this just seemed to me to be two albums that I was looking forward to listening to, to diving into. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did have one little connection that I wanted to talk about. Just, oh, sure. Just kind of a cutesy little thing that I thought of, you know, in the song black star, he, at one point it, he says, I'm not a rap star. Right. Uh-huh. Doesn't he yeah. say that at one point? And then, then he, you know, he says, I'm a black star. And then he says, I'm not a gang star. Yeah. And Gangstar is another rap group. Yes. So I just kind of thought that that was like a I don't know whether that's intentional or whether that's just BS, but um uh I just kind of liked that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh you know both of these artists were digging into literary pasts for influence with Bowie using the Tizzy Pity She's a Whore play as an influence. And uh, Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye, was um, inspi- inspired the track Thieves in the Night. And uh, there's a really cool quote by uh, Talib Kweli saying how he read that in high school and there's a, there's a paragraph in it that really stuck out to him. And then he kind of incorporated that paragraph into the album. So there are literary uh, influences to both as well. So anyway, um, that just about wraps up our first episode. Um are you ready to reveal our album for next week? Uh, yes, I am. Um, we are going to listen to uh, 
the new Eleanor Friedberger album. New View. New View. Interesting. with some connection to that album then huh yeah now i'm i'm I'm, the gears are already turning (laughs) so we shall see um anyway you can follow us on twitter what's your twitter handle vince mine is uh at vj underscore o-s-t-r-o-w-s-k-i and i am at brian needs a nap and uh we are definitely up for conversation from you guys so tweet at us tell us all about what you think of the show what you think of the albums we talked about what other albums we should look into in the future and uh that's all i got anything else vince no i think that's it all right thanks for listening guys and we'll see you in a few weeks